0: Hello and welcome to Twisted Britain, a podcast on true crime in Britain with a sprinkling of the weird and the macabre. And your hosts, as always, are me, Bob Dale, and me, Ali Downey. And we have the joy of being uh, joined by Doctor Shahom Das, um, who is well. Why don't you tell us who who are you, Shahom?
1: <laughs> Jeez, that seems uh, like quite a psychological question there. <laughs> uh, so it's a pleasure, Bob and Ali, for, for uh, to be here. Thank you for having me on. So yeah, Doctor Shahom Das is my name. I'm a consultant forensic psychiatrist. So basically, a psychiatrist is a doctor who assesses people with mental illnesses, and I do that, but with people that have committed serious violence. And I also work as an expert witness, which means I give evidence in criminal trials.
0: This is something that the three of us have talked about for a couple of years now. Since we we did a, a live recording at uh, the first ever CrimeCon in London, it was a bit of a, a funny night. We were supposed to be doing it as a live thing in front of the, 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 the before the quiz went on, and it didn't happen. But we, on that occasion, we talked about. Um, the assassination attempts on Queen Victoria, and uh, your insight was very, very welcome on it, and it, it's it led us to go. We need to do something. Just sitting down with yourself and talking about um, our opinions on things and how they how you can translate them into into your world. And Ali and I have always said we we are not experts in true crime. Um, we have a fascination, and we like to tell a story. F- from my opinion you are an expert in this area and some of the things that we keep coming back to correct me if I'm wrong Al is why yeah the human mind is a really tricky place to think about like it's an, a total it's amazing the, the human mind's amazing but it's also like a totally fucked up field of thought I think is probably my, my, my statement for now and that fucked up field of thought is your your playing field really is it not that's what pays the bills yeah <laughs> <laughs> Um so we thought we'd ask you a few questions on, on, on things that we've covered in the past. I know Ali's got a, a burning case he's been wanting to talk to you about for a while, but I thought before we got started off, your um foray into the, the true crime genre has been through YouTube mainly, uh which is a Psych for Sore Mind. And um if you're not a subscriber, go and do it right now. Um what led you to do the YouTube videos? So I think I've always known that
1: I've that people are fascinated in what I do for a living, right? So from my next door neighbours to school drop offs to my own friends to you know random people I speak to at parties when I tell them what I do, there's so many questions. You know, what is a psychopath? What do you think of this high profile case? Do you think this person's faking it? So I've always known in the back of my mind that there is this thirst for. For questions that are quite easy for me to to answer because I do it day in day out, but I've never had the inclination or the time to do anything about it. And then lockdown happened, so during lockdown I should have done it earlier. Actually, it took me a while to get my ass in gear, but um, towards the end of lockdown I started researching other YouTube videos. And something that struck me very very quickly was that there's a lot of people that don't know what they're talking about who either um, call themselves experts or. or who have qualifications in something that's not quite forensic psychiatry or psychology, but they they kind of muscle into that space. And that's fine. Anyone's allowed to make videos. I don't own YouTube uh, yet. But a lot of what they said was just factually incorrect. So that was a slightly bitter reason for me to start my channel but that's that's really what inspired me. I was like, you know, I'd see it, uh, they'd diagnose somebody as a psychopath and describe what a psychopath is and I was watching it thinking, you know, th- this is just factually incorrect. So it's a combination of those two things. So I decided to make my YouTube channel. In my head, it would be really easy to make a video. It'd take like, you know, maybe half a morning a week. That's how long it would take me to make a video. In my head, it's like, three or four times longer than that and it so much it's, it's that, mad yeah, how much time in. it
0: takes up to do these it things have isn't warm, it? you have to put in
1: and then looking at other channels that are, that are quite popular there's there's loads of them out there the, that have hundreds of thousands of subscribers that I think make quite weak content and just to be clear there are very good channels out there so I'm not saying all of them by any means I thought well if they can make it so can I so I will probably have like 10,000 subscribers within the first few months that's probably how it works and then is, I got through this not hindsight a wonderful yeah, thing it isn't is so it so much harder than and, than I expected
0: I find that really interesting. You say what you're saying there is you, you, there's a lot of content out there, and a lot of people portraying themselves as experts in true crime or or experts on certain cases. And we've just finished sitting in a room with with people I would consider as experts in, in in certain areas of crime and certain certainly specific crimes. Um, Ali and I, as I said, we would never claim to be experts. We would claim to be storytellers. the The line that crosses between storytelling and, and, and factual delivery, I think, has a huge, there's a huge difference in that. Do you find that difficult delivering a case in your YouTube videos and staying on the, uh, I'm trying to think of the right way, staying on a road that, that people will understand what you're talking about? Because obviously your, um, your field of expertise is, is quite niche.
1: Yeah. So, uh, yeah, good question. So my answer to that would be that over time I've learnt, I think, I hope, how to be a bit more kind of direct and pithy and summarise things, and I've learnt what people want to know and what they don't want to know about. So I'll be specific. My very first video was about some man called John T. Bravery. You've probably heard of. He's the guy that chucked the, um, the young French boy off a balcony in 2018, I believe. And my first video is maybe over half an hour long, and I went through all the medical legal criteria and all the diagnostic criteria, It's barely got any views. and I I look back at it now and I just think it's actually boring. (laughs) It's fucking boring (laughs) for me to to watch. And over time, I've realised that people don't want to know the absolute ins and outs and all the details. They just want a basic kind of summary of what happened. Then uh, a basic summary of the most interesting. But it's not all of it. Just the most interesting aspects of what I think. And then putting a few jokes in it. And that's the format that works. But it took me like probably about a year to figure out how to do that. So to answer your question... It's not that hard to to actually, you know, uh, summarize things is, is is easy. You know, I can I can do that in my sleep. But it took me a while to realize that I had to do that and that was the the hardest bit for me, that was the learning curve to realize what Building people want. Building that
0: format that works for for an audience. Is, yeah, uh,
1: just just for me to realize that people don't want to know every single detail, they just want to know the highlights. That's what YouTube is about, I think, the hi- the most interesting summary that you can find.
0: Um so Ali and I have covered a few cases in our time that have left us going I suppose the simple uh, simple phrases, he was batshit crazy or she was batshit crazy. And that is obviously not a medical term. That's just our take on things. The sociopath, psychopath, uh, words that are thrown at true crime, do they jar with you?
1: Uh, no, no, they don't jar with me. It jars when people use them inappropriately. So the terms themselves exist and are clinically sound. It's when people people say somebody's psychopath and they're not. Uh, I would say that when you're, talk, you're talking about somebody being a batshit crazy, there is, in my view, there's kind of two ends of the spectrum, right? So there's either people that have like an actual mental illness, a good example of that would be schizophrenia. So the people that I see, uh, and you know, just to make the point that um, the vast majority of people with schizophrenia are not dangerous, but the people that I see in the, in the criminal justice system tend to like hear voices or they tend to have paranoid delusions that would encompass psychosis. And on the other end of the spectrum, you get people with personality disorders, which is very different. So a psychosis is a temporary state where you're outside of reality and you're not really in control of what you're doing. You don't understand what's real and what isn't. Whereas a personality disorder is much more ingrained. So somebody like a psychopath, they know exactly what they're doing and and they're always a psychopath. Where if you're psychotic, in theory, if you treat somebody, it's temporary and they can be healed. Whereas a psychopath is always a psychopath. So I suppose, in my world, batshit crazy is the psychosis end of the spectrum because that can be treated, that can be rehabilitated, and the personality disorders is extreme, but it's not crazy in my view. It just means that somebody does something evil or bad, but that doesn't make them psychotic.
0: So I'm just going off the cuff here. We, we, we hear m- many things about serial killers and uh, and murderers having the, the McDonald triad. The, the, they've been dropped or they've had head injuries or, or abuse or one of these... Um one of these triggers, I, and I'm going to go out there and I'm going to personally say I don't know if I fully agree with that that, that being a diagnosis or a reasoning for giving somebody a, a, a label as such. In your uh, field of study, is the... It is the McDonald triad isn't it that's the one that I'm thinking of Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Of. is that a, a, an acknowledged thing No it's
1: absolute bullshit so <laughs> uh, the McDonald triad is right, I think I've got this right time, if I got it wrong so is it bedwetting fire setting and torturing animals and that's supposed to be predictive of yeah. people that become psychopaths So interestingly the person who made uh, the triad himself who kind of put it forward as a theory Mr. McDonald, I presume, is his name. uh, Had a farm. Old (laughs) McDonald. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, He himself actually um, did some studies, and then he himself found that it wasn't really correlated with psychopathy. He thought he put it forward as a theory. Then he did some follow-up studies and then disproved his own theory. But for some reason that I don't fully understand, some people ran with it and took it and it became like a theory. But it's absolutely not accepted in forensic psychiatry now. People don't believe it anymore. It was just, it just it's, it's a bit like when you get these like fad diets that come out once in a while and they're really popular for a short period of time and then they don't work and then people kind of ignore them. That is the psychiatric equivalent but for some reason it's stuck around longer than it should have. But no, it's absolute bullshit.
2: That's fascinating. In, in our uh, social media predominant world um with so many youtube channels who claim to be experts or present themselves uh, as experts who may not have the background knowledge that they should do you think disinformation or misinformation is a big problem
1: yeah Uh, am i allowed to name a specific youtube channel that i've got slight beef with of course (laughs) we (laughs) we don't care at all yeah (laughs) carry
2: on right so there's this guy
1: you should for listeners this should check him out it's called dr grande And he is very big on YouTube. He's got uh, over a million subscribers. And he's been going for a long time, I think since about 2010 maybe. I'm not sure of the exact year, maybe even earlier than that. And uh, he's got a PhD in counsellor education, right? And he calls himself Dr. Grande, and his channel is called Dr. Grande. And he talks about psychiatric and psychological cases. Uh, And I think that is either intentionally or unintentionally misleading, but it's misleading because he calls himself Dr. Grande. So if you're listening, and he doesn't make content about counsellor education, which is what he's PhD in. So if you watch his channel and he's talking about psychiatric issues and psychological issues, then I think the average person would assume that he is a, a doctor in those areas. Um, and I I said this before, but I absolutely have no problem with anybody making any content. You know, Anyone's allowed to do that. But I think when you portray yourself as something that you're not then I think that's a bit disrespectful to people like myself that work in the field and specifically he's got a few big things wrong so I actually made a diss I made a few diss videos uh, about him firstly because uh, him his persona and his material frustrates me and secondly because I'm chasing clout a little bit because he's a big youtuber <laughs> to start a beef with he's completely ignored me uh, which is unsurprising considering oh we'll we'll change
0: that we'll get him Well, you absolutely
1: yeah, Um, and so he did it. He covered the case of Chris Watts. I'm sure you're both quite familiar with. And he, I I I won't go into those detail, but I'll summarise really quickly. He says that Chris Watts is a psychopath, and Chris Watts absolutely is not a psychopath. So what Chris Watts did was horrific, unexplainable, impulsive. But a psychopath is somebody who is charming and manipulative. Chris Watts was not those things. Is is kind of irresponsible in terms of their life decisions. Is a parasite, and they don't they are not. They don't act in a responsible way looking after their family. So Chris Watts is literally the opposite of all those things. So despite the fact that what he did was impulsive and despicable, a psychopathy is like a lifelong diagnosis. So that really jarred with me that he was using it inappropriately. So uh, the, pr- the problem I have with that is that other people will watch that video and think they will know what a psychopath is and they'll exactly. get it wrong. And I suppose the problem with YouTube or all social media is, is it's not... Um, it's not kind of overseen or supervised by anybody, so anyone can make any content. But yeah, so that's one of the one of the things that pisses me off a little bit.
0: It's the cesspit of shit. That's what we like to call social media. It's an absolute cesspit of shit because literally anybody and everybody. And now I suppose both Ali and I and and, and yourself to an extent, Jahom, like we have entered into a world where you can create content for essentially nothing. You know, you, you look at the equipment that we have here, it's not a huge amount of money to get going and, I, and, and what we have is pretty good kit. I think the difference between what I would like our content to be and, 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 and I would imagine yours is the same is factually accurate. So when somebody picks up your channel or your feed or your whatever it happens to be is that they can rely on the, the people that are telling you will openly say either I'm not an expert in here at this but here's my take on it which is also a very fine line to walk, or here's the story of X, and this is our, how I have read about it um, that to me is a different way of doing things and the way that the social response social responsibility that goes with having uh, and, and we're lucky to have tens of thousands of listeners a month uh, of people who we are infinitely um, thankful for for listening. We want them to think that listening to Twisted Britain is a source of information that is a starting point for them to look at the cases. Um, and I would imagine you'd think you'd, you'd feel the same way that you know here I'm going to tell you a case and here's my expert opinion on it. But if you want to draw your own opinion on it, go and do it. And I think the danger of that is it's so easy to do it that this is what happened. That this is what happened. Sentence in true crime podcasting and YouTubing and uh, and and all and, and tiktoks and all that that this is what happens a really dangerous sentence to me um because it can lead you to have people that go he said this so it must be real So that was my tiny rant on uh, social <laughs> media which i will continue to do forever it's mainly because you and i are both shit at social media
2: we
1: are terrible at social media so I, th- I think when people just say facts of the case or cover true crime in that way, like a, almost a documentary style, but in, a, in the format of an audio podcast or a YouTube channel, I have no problem with that. Um, you know, I, I watch those kind of things. I find it entertaining. It's when people make opinions and get them wrong and they don't, they're not based in a career where they've assessed people. Uh, that I think is quite harmful. It's not, it's not the facts that bother me. It's the opinions about those facts
0: that bother me if they're wrong. So I suppose leading on from that, the true crime genre... Which we're all a part of is ridiculously massive. Um, we've speculated uh, that it is the the human psyche that wants to see. I can't. Uh, I don't know how to put this. I can't believe they did that. Or is every human one step away from that? Or is that? And and that's how I was just taking on it with with very few expertise, but having read uh, thousands and thousands of pages of different true crime cases over over hundreds of years of of, of 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 um content sorry your take on the the, the true crime genre in itself from a, from a forensic point of view, does the human mind lend itself to that is it is it something that's in our psyche to look at the morbid
1: yeah, I think it is for some people, definitely not all people so uh from what I've learned from attending three crime cons now is that the people that are really into it are, are, are really invested in it. They know everything about all these like serial killers and murderers. And, and I, I have no level, no kind of uh, degree of that level of knowledge as I'm sure will come out in the uh, quiz tonight. But I, <laughs> I would broadly categorize people that are into it into, into two camps. There's those that are afraid of being a victim. So people that watch it because they're kind of slightly titillated and horrified about what can happen to other people. So, you know, for example, vulnerable women, uh, they, they, I don't know if I'd say they take pleasure, but they, they're they fascinated by cases of like domestic violence or when women have been attacked. And the other category is people, I think, uh, many people wouldn't admit this, where they think they could be the perpetrator. Because I'm sure we've all had kind of murderous thoughts, whether it's about an ex-partner or a boss or yeah. your colleague that you're, that you're co-hosting your podcast with. Yeah. <laughs> but, mainly, but, mainly that, yeah. <laughs> but very few of us will, you know, we've all got social and moral and ethical barriers. So I think we're kind of fascinated, myself included, are fascinated by those people that take that extra step. Uh, And we want to know about the lurid details, you know, like as a psychiatrist on my content, I try and stray away a little bit from that and try and talk about the rehabilitation. And I've come to learn that people are are interested in that to a degree, but they also want to know the gory details. And I get it. Like I myself am more interested in in the horrific things that people have done. So, yeah, I think we we know in ourselves that we could we've got the thoughts of being of doing something you know, murderous or horrific occasionally, but we don't act on these impulses. So we're fascinated by the people that do act on those impulses.
0: Uh, the rehabilitation aspect of it is something I'd like to come back to you with it, it in a moment. Um, before I hand you over to Ali, because I know he's burning to ask you about um, Jesse King, um, I see modern true crime podcasting as the ancient equivalent of the going to see the public hanging. It's that morbid fascination of something that I don't think I'm capable of doing. Um, and I just find that we've covered cases where we've had what, 200,000 people turning out for a public hanging. Lovely day out, I would just imagine you'd get a sweet-ass hot dog at it and there'd be beer sellers and all that kind of shit. So it would be a thing. I, in my head, wonder if the true crime genre that we live in now, which is obviously a a much more technical world. I wonder if that's the modern equivalent of the going to see the public hanging. That's where it sits with me. And I don't know if that sits easy. And it's really weird having that thought when we go to sit down and hit record. Am I contributing to something that I'm uneasy with or am I just telling a story? It's a really weird one, that.
1: So when you were saying that, the thought that popped into my head was it's a bit like um, fights at school, right? So when there's a commotion in the playground, everybody, and again, me included when I was a kid, used to run towards it because you want to see the fight because we all know they end within a minute or so so you don't want to miss it. I think it's the same kind of sensationist, lurid sensation um, of wanting to see this kind of extreme violence because it it is fascinating. It is quite interesting. Um, But I don't think there's anything, I, I suppose it depends on the tone of what you're presenting. If you're, if you're doing it, if you don't have any kind of empathy or if you're not seen to have any empathy for the victim or you're kind of making fun of the victim, then absolutely you're capitalizing,
0: I think, on someone else's misery. But actually people are generally a bit more sensible than that. And those podcasts will lame, remain unnamed by us, but um, I I, 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 I'm thinking of a few. Yeah. Okay, all right, okay. Um, um, we'll talk about it off mic. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think with public hangings
2: as well back then, certainly historically, justice had to seem to have been done. That was one of the reasons they did it so publicly until they started to until do it. it went behind closed until doors. it went behind closed doors because back then you had to know that there were consequences in order to keep the country in line essentially
0: We'll move on slightly um a case that I know. I know for a fact, because we've just recorded a podcast with a bunch of other podcasters and you told us that this was the one that stuck in your head. But obviously Ali and I spend a lot of time together recording podcasts and the one that I know that sticks in your head. And we'll not do one each here, but I'll let Ali take the limelight here. Um, Jesse King. Ali, who was Jesse King? Uh,
2: Jesse King was a young girl in the late 1800s, 1889, I think she was uh, executed for uh, adopting, because you could be paid to adopt children back then, illegitimate children, and then murdering seven children, uh, I think it was. And it, it's always fascinated me what could drive uh, someone to do that. So looking into uh, her life, she had a terrible, terrible childhood. Uh, she was abandoned by her parents and all sorts of things. But one of the biggest things that I not, couldn't get my head around, but that I didn't, have enough knowledge of how it would affect someone is she was uh, incarcerated for eight or nine months uh, in an asylum for having an illegitimate child herself, which was forcibly aborted. Um, and she was treated for, uh, for depression with mercury uh, at the time. So I was just wondering uh, if you could have any insights on what sort of effect that kind of incarceration could have on a young impressionable girl she would have been 17 or 18 uh, when she was put in
1: yeah yeah good question Ali um, so I'm happy to answer it there'll be a degree of speculation because obviously don't have that much detail about yeah. background aside from what you told me but immediately a few things jump out so with, with the patients that I see almost all of them it's very very rare maybe one percent of patients that I see don't have anything in their background that is you know either traumatic or challenging or in some way horrific the vast vast majority do and it's often things that you've talked about so it's either being abandoned or being physically or sexually abused um, and I think there's lots of different mechanisms that cause them to offend or them to become violent so one simple one would be just simply modeling your parents behavior so if you witness domestic violence from for example your father to your mother um, hypothetically speaking if you're a boy there's a massively increased chance that you're going to commit that because you model behavior you think of that as a way of conflict resolution so similarly, if she was abandoned, Jesse, I'm sure she would have felt inferior. She would have had some sort of inferiority complex and maybe felt damaged in a way. So some people can, can discuss that in later life healthily, like through therapy or just talking to friends or whatever it may be. And some people internalize it. Or doing a it.
0: podcast. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's, that says a lot about your background, Bob. Um, or they uh, internalize it and it becomes this kind of rage that boils under the surface until it comes out in you know, explosive violence. So I wonder whether that's happened to Jesse. So she's already got that in the background. And then to be incarcerated. So asylums, I think back then, basically contained crazy people. They didn't do anything. They didn't treat people. I don't think the actual psychiatric treatment like therapy or even medication came out till at least the 1950s, I believe, when medication came out and, and roughly the same for therapy. So up until then, all they did was keep people locked away. It's, it's basically the equivalent of a prison except everyone in there is has got some psychiatric illness. And even, even um, more kind of disturbing is that is that they actually used to have aristocracies to play, pay tickets to come and see people in those environments, like going to a zoo. So you'd pay your entry fee and you'd walk around and see these crazy people in the, in the cages, you know, pulling their hair out naked, probably responding to voices, what we would recognise as something like schizophrenia, you know, really paranoid and, and saying really, really odd things. So if she was in that kind of environment, especially at such an age, a young age, I'm sure that would have added to her already sense of being damaged and her inferiority complex. So I'm sure that all of these things at least contributed to her actions later on,
0: yeah. That um, is one of the most horrific things I've ever heard, that people paid to go and view the sick. It's that kind of freak show yeah. feeling,
1: isn't it? It's exactly that. It's like a, a modern-day circus, or the, the older older days equivalent of a circus, I
2: guess. That is horrendous. I'd heard about it in prisons. I, I, I actually hadn't. I'd heard about it in prisons, that uh, yeah, inmates, uh, Famous inmates aristocracy would pay to go and see them before they were hanged.
1: And and just to talk about the mercury. So, uh, as you know, I, I hadn't really heard of that as a treatment for depression, um, but I googled it at lunch. <laughs> so I, I would be, the, as a psychiatrist, I would be the first to admit that psychiatry has a bit of a dark past and psychiatrists have tried some pretty out there um methods to try and cure different illnesses so one that that strikes me is like the lobotomy so people used to literally cut out people's bits of brains in the false belief that it would cure some people and i think basically it's a bit like fads we were talking about before you get one doctor psychiatrist who probably has good intentions but they're very they've got their own agenda so they think in their heads that they've discovered something new and so they only kind of talk about or publish case studies where they think it's worked and especially back in those days, it kind of it sp- what what is basically a rumor spreads and becomes scientific knowledge. So that happened with lobotomies. It used to happen with insulin coma therapy. So psychiatrists used to give um, patients loads of insulin, so they literally passed out for uh, days at a time, and then they thought that cured depression. But I don't think it did. I think it just made the individuals so kind of lethargic. Uh, not Sorry, not depression, I said the wrong thing. Uh, mania, so that's like the opposite of depression. That's when somebody's hyper-excitable and, uh, you know, really impulsive and their mind's all over the place and they're full of energy and they can't sleep, blah, blah, So they thought it cured mania, but actually it just zonked people out because <laughs> because they're in a coma. So that got misinterpreted as a treatment. So I think mercury was similar to that. It was used for a short period of time. It's actually used in other things, I believe, as well as depression, but it does cause depression and anxiety. Having said that, depression and anxiety in itself is not really an illness that would that would explain why an individual like Jessie would kill children compared to a psychosis or a mania. Um, but it might have been just one of many, many factors that made her more likely to offend, like out of irritability or a bit of a nihilistic outlook in life.
0: I know we talk about Mercury. And we, we, the first thing that jumps to my mind when we talk to, about Mercury is, is the Mad Hatter, you know, it's the Alice in Wonderland thing. And then it was used in the, the, the making of hats and it, it did result in that uh, occupation being well, we'll go back to batshit crazy, and they were because of mercury poisoning. I know you had a take on what you thought about Jesse, and I know you... Compassion's not probably the right word, but you definitely felt sorry for her when we talked to her about it.
2: Yeah, I'd, I'd never come across someone I felt that empathetic for uh, who I knew had done such monstrous things. A lot of the time when we talk about these killers, they're awful people. They might have had a traumatic experience in their childhood, which people try to justify it with. But yeah, I've never felt such empathy as I felt for Jessie. She had such a terrible time. She was sexually abused as well. Uh, Can as I ask you a question, Ali? Like, do you think abandoned.
1: her age and agenda is something, one of the, or two of the reasons that you have more empathy for her? So another way of phrasing that question was, say if it was a 30-year-old man who had exactly the same experiences and the exact same thing, do you think you'd feel the same or not?
0: That's a great question. That's a great question. Personally, um, no, I wouldn't have the same amount of empathy. And that probably says a lot about me or my social conditioning. Um, If I could speculate on your answer, knowing you as well as I do, I think you probably would still have empathy for them because of the background, negating gender and age. But I think Sean's probably right. The fact that she was so young and damaged... Is the one thing that you clasp onto here, isn't it?
2: I think I would. Ha- I would think I would still feel as empathetic towards her were she uh, a boy rather than a girl. But I am very aware of how different boys and girls were treated back then. Like, a boy would never have been treated the way she was treated. So there is probably a bit of the, the rampant feminist in me that is disgusted at the way. Women and young girls were treated back then as well. Yeah. Okay.
1: So, uh, got a bit of tan- tangent here, if I may. So sometimes I get asked, like, what's the most kind of emotionally, um, the cases that affected me most emotionally in my career, and I've got a stock answer because I've thought about it so much. i have written about it in my book, and in fact, I, my very first crime con talk was
0: about. You have her. a book out. We'll come back to that. <laughs> um,
1: and so I call her Yasmin. I don't use a real name, but she was an 18-year-old girl who I assessed probably a good six, seven years ago now. So she was 18 years old, no history of any mental health issues, no history of any antisocial behavior, no criminality, just an an ordinary average um, young school girl, quite shy. And she became psychotic out of nowhere. Remember I said before that only about 1% of my patients have no kind of background reasons. She was one of those 1%. Uh, and she ended up killing her three-year-old nephew. So she was psychotic and she had these beliefs about how he was possessed by demons and she was saving, uh, not saving his life, but she was getting rid of these demons by smothering him and that she could reincarnate him. So I ended up seeing her in uh, Holloway prison and assessing her and I, I got her, my, then I sectioned her to our the psychiatric unit that I was working at the time in London. Uh, and then assessed her for a few months, and then I wrote a court report suggesting they're not guilty by reason of insanity plea, which was uh, upheld by the by the judge. So she ended up going to hospital for long-term rehabilitation as opposed to spending a, a life sentence in prison. Um, and I do have to say that absolutely I recognise that part of the reason that that sticks out to me more than other cases, because I've, I've seen other people that have killed family members, I've assessed somebody recently who killed a complete random stranger, is because she was so sort of untarnished and young, And probably part of it was that I met her family quite regularly because her brother, who was the father of the child that was killed, was part of the family therapy. So he would come in for sessions on a weekly basis and I would sit in the room. And obviously the whole thing's emotionally charged. So I think it sticks in my mind more because she was female, because she was young, because she was untarnished, because a a child died, uh, because it's just so inexplicable compared to somebody who's like an antisocial drug dealer, many of whom I've assessed. And you can kind of see where the violence came from. I think it's a combination of all the things, plus her family got involved. So I guess the point I'm trying to make is I, I actually, I definitely think the demographics of the individual makes a difference.
0: Uh, in, sa- in hindsight, so that was about six years ago, in hindsight, looking back at that case now, and I know you say it's your stock answer, but was the outcome the right thing? Absolutely, yeah.
1: So she was extremely psychotic and paranoid, but she's also very, very guarded. So it was really hard to assess her and she wouldn't open up at all because in her head, her beliefs were true. And it took about 18 months of medication before she finally actually accepted what she did so for 18 months when she's in a hospital she didn't believe that the, the child was dead she thought it was all part of this conspiracy she, she thought that she'd reincarnated him she didn't believe anybody else um so uh i had My evidence not worked or had the judge not accepted the the insanity plea she would have gone to prison she almost certainly wouldn't have taken medication because she didn't have any insight we had to like physically restrain her and and inject her with antipsychotics not only for the first couple of times and then she reluctantly agreed to take tablets but you can't do that in prison because you can't use the mental health act in prison whereas you can in, in psych hospitals so, I'm 100% convinced that she would have just festered in psychosis, possibly for the rest of her life in prison. Whereas the trajectory that she took with us is that she stayed in prison, uh, in, sorry, in hospital, in a medium secure unit, I'd say, for about three years, three and a half years. Eventually got better, got, got rid of a psychotic symptom. She had lots of therapy, had to deal with her depression, uh, but she got to rebuild her life. So, she was, what, 22 when she, when she left our hospital. Uh, and she's gone on to lead a, a fairly productive life. So, I oh, think we no. saved. That was going
0: to be my question there. So somebody like that can come off drugs? Uh, No. Well, actually, they can,
1: but it's it's very, very risky. So all psychotropic medications, all all psychiatric medications have side effects. Antipsychotics probably have the worst. So from weight gain to... Uh, sedation to anxiety to giving you diabetes um, but for somebody as risky as her she should either be in it lifelong or if she's not had any psychotic symptoms for something like two or three years you can very very gradually reduce the dose like I'm talking about maybe five percent reduction of the dose every few weeks so that that whole process itself might take several like six months or even a year and you have to check on a regular basis to see any of her psychotic symptoms return uh, so it's possible but um, it's also very high risk.
0: The thought process that's running through my mind at this point is some of the cases we've covered. Uh, and when you start talking about <clears throat> perpetrators who have had moments of, of, of blackness or moments of, 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 psychos- of, of psychosis, I wonder if the cases we've covered maybe would never have existed if they had been modern day. I've probably said that in a really ridiculous way but like I'm trying to think of an example of a case but if you would take somebody who acted in the moment and then acted again and again and again but re-offended if we had somebody like yourself and the medication that we have now I wonder if a lot of the cases that we've talked about would never have actually existed it's sh- hugely speculative. Yeah, though. the
1: answer to that would be what caused those moments. So if they were moments of psychosis like this this young girl Yasmin that I keep talking about, then absolutely they can be prevented with being on lifelong medication. I'm very convinced of that because I've seen it. But if it's just moments of like flashes of rage or reactive moments uh, where somebody has an anger management problem, then I'd you can't really treat that. with.
0: Medication. So that's a completely different thing. So it's a, a reactive rather than a psychosis. It's hugely different. Absolutely.
2: To go to almost the other end uh, of the spectrum, in your experience, have you ever seen such a thing as a hopeless case? Yeah. So
1: I, there's definitely been some people that have been stuck in psychiatric hospitals that I'm fairly convinced will never leave. So I worked at Broadmoor uh, briefly for about six months, probably about seven or eight years ago now when I was a middle grade doctor. And I worked in the high dependency unit, which is of, of the many wards. I'm not sure how many there are. I think it's 13 or something. Of the many wards, that, that was the second most serious. So the only one above that is intensive care. And the people that I saw were, there were only about eight patients on the ward. And at least half, maybe even more than that, will never leave hospital. And the reason they won't is because we've, they've already been there for years. And the psychiatrists there have already thrown as much powerful antipsychotic medication as there is available so i don't know if you have clozapine for example clozapine is like the strongest antipsychotic there is it's also got some of the worst side side effect profiles and people die taking it um but it is the most powerful so if you give somebody clozapine and you very very slowly increase the dose and to almost maximum dose and also a combination of other antipsychotics and if their psychosis doesn't go then it's never going to go so yeah there are what i would deem homeless hopeless cases in that they cannot be cured with medication. But they are the exception. They're probably a, they're a very small percentage.
0: The yeah. 0.5%. I wonder if that'll change over time with medical research going forward. You would hope so. Well,
1: actually, interestingly and slightly unfortunately, there's not that much research that goes into psychiatric drugs. Like, there isn't really any new psychiatric drugs that have come out. There's different versions of older ones. And there's a, a slightly a slightly conspiratorial... Is that the word? conspiration? We'll take it. <laughs> Conspiratorial theory behind this, and that's because it is much more expensive for a drug company to develop a, a new psychotropic drug than it is to kind of rebrand old drugs. And unlike a lot of physical health medications, they all work sloppily, I guess. Like, we know they kind of block some receptors at some point, but they're not kind of very accurate. They're very blunt tools, I guess, is what I'm trying to they're say. not targeted. Yeah, exactly. They're not targeted. They just block lots of receptors, and, and, luck, and hopefully some of them will, will decrease mental illness. So uh, it's quite hard to develop new drugs, and it's much cheaper to just kind of make, like you can make variations of the drugs that exist. So for example, I'll give you a specific example. You've probably heard of citalopram, the antidepressant. There's another one called e which is like an isomer. So drug companies didn't have to spend that much money. They just changed one of the chemical mod- uh, molecules, and they found that it worked slightly differently in different types of depression. So it's much cheaper for them to rebrand it, call it something else, and, and try and sell it to psychiatrists as a miracle cure for a different type of depression than it is to try and start to, to make a new drug
0: that's really interesting Ali and I talked recently and did a patreon episode about poisons and it was the first one that you wrote for the both of us and we talked about a load of different things within it and strychnine is the one that comes to mind it was used as a a bleaching agent for skin it was used to treat uh, as a rat poison and stuff like that but it slowly became um Use as a, a, a as a killer poison. It's that kind of black widow effect. Women famously became poisoners, but actually the the almost the research that came out of the deaths that happened due to strictly meant that they found that it, it it had uses in medical science. And just you're talking about the, the kind of refining of it, it just made me think about you know the the refining of things that used to kill people, the, the things that are now used to treat people, and there must be some correlation in shit a few people died but actually now thousands of people have lived because of it not making excuses for but I just find it a really interesting subject when we did the poison episode it was it was something I didn't know a huge amount about and you did most of the research for it but um.
1: so I I can add to that I think Um, I'm trying to remember in my head the details I'm not sure I got it 100% right it's definitely lithium is the right drug but I'm not sure what disease it was I think it was initially used as an anti-malarial I think or maybe anti-syphilitic I'm not sure one of those two things Uh, And uh, one particular doctor hundreds of years ago, hundreds, well, well, no, decades ago, um, used it on a bunch of these patients. And he accidentally found that people who had bipolar, had mania, actually calmed down on lithium. It was syphilis. Syphilis. Okay, there you go. So over time, uh, it became a mood stabilizer and it still is to this day. Like it's, even though it's a very old drug, it's actually very effective in mood stabilizer. And that was completely by accident.
0: It's one of my favourite things when we're doing Twisted Britain episodes and we talk about the first use of um, fingerprinting or we talk about the first use of DNA or the first use of this and how it it spirals into the criminal justice system that we, we arrive at today. Now, the criminal justice system that we have today is obviously not perfect, but we've said on many occasions that when we're looking into cases, you can see how these cases that are maybe not... Covered in mainstream media, mainstream podcasting, and stuff that we'll maybe talk about for 45 minutes of a Tuesday night when we're having a couple of pints, Um, having an effect on where we are. I personally, moving us slightly on, because we will have to wrap this up at some point, but I I had a, a couple of questions I wanted to put to you. You've worked in the criminal justice system quite extensively. And while we talk about things moving on, so fingerprinting becoming a standard and, and DNA testing in the last 35 years becoming a, a thing that, that we now routinely do, although we've had huge amounts of progression in, in the criminal justice system and the rehabilitation system of, of people, and I, and I make a differentiation between them because you talk about hospitals and jails as being separate things, and they, and they, they quite clearly are, but they're not perfect. And I don't know where we go from here because we have an infrastructure of old prisons and new hospitals treating different things en masse. And I just wonder from your take as an expert working in these areas, whether is the system, not is the system right because there is no right system, but is there a way of saying we need to separate um, rehabilitation from incarceration? Is that a definitive thing?
1: Um, <clears throat> so again, I suppose it depends on which perpetrators you're talking about. If you're talking about people that have clear mental illnesses, that there is treatment available, like medication and psychotherapy, then absolutely, I think part of the system that I'm part of, part of my expert witness work, is to get those people. And it's a small proportion of people. You know, it's, it's probably of the cases that I see, I only recommend hospitalisation for maybe ten percent. So it's, it's definitely the minority. Um, they need to go into these environments. They're locked environments, you know, they can't leave, but they are psychiatric wards as opposed to hospital. And there is a system in place. Um, is it perfect? Absolutely not. So if we're talking about hospitals, there is a a massive waiting list. So that's what that's one key thing I'd say. Uh, so when I, I used to work in a female prison, Bronzefield. And Can
0: I just say, when you're talking about hospitals, are you talking about um,
1: uh, secure? Yeah, secure psychiatric units I'm talking about, yeah. And... It depends on the region of where the person was originally from because that nhs trust has responsibility to put them into one of these secure units oh, okay. and generally speaking cities are clogged up because they have so much demand on the beds so there will be waiting lists of weeks to sometimes months like i've seen a few women who are psychotic crawling the walls dirty processed, naked screaming hearing voices just like the most psychotic you can imagine who in that situation for up to i think the longest i've seen is probably about six months because just a bed didn't become available Generally speaking, the suburbs had much shorter waiting lists because there was less demand on their per capita. Uh, So that's one massive thing is actually having enough uh, beds available for those people to come in. So that's one huge thing that needs to be solved. Another thing is the system itself is really clunky and disorganized. So I'm not exaggerating here where there would be occasional patients where we didn't necessarily know where they're from or they've moved around different areas and it would take me a couple of weeks just to make the referral because I couldn't find the contact details and they were uncontactable. You know, they'd have websites of people sort of pointing and, smi- and like smiling and pointing the distance but they didn't have fucking contact details on. Sometimes wow. I contact them and on one occasion, uh, this is true, I'd sent some prison medical, because they want all the background information so I sent everything by email. And they actually, and there's a lot of pages, like 100 pages of medical notes from the prison. And they eventually contacted me back after I had to chase them, which is the norm asked me to fax them over all the information. So I literally had to print out like 100 pages of stuff that was electronically there and
0: then fax it individually, sheet by sheet. For the young people listening, a fax is an email that's printed out and sent down the phone. And a phone is that thing in your house that your mum used to have or your gran used to have. (laughs) That's mad. Is it moving in the right direction? Are people like you are people like you making a difference since like I'm, I'm I'm belittling what you do and I'm absolutely not? You know I hugely respect you and and, and what you do. Are people like you in a scenario where you can- I'm a swagger. You are, yeah, yeah. And you swagger. For anybody who's not seen Dr. Saham Das, he is one of the most handsome men I've ever met, and I love him to pieces. And I would never ever belittle him at all. But does your do you go to work feeling? I'm making a difference to the system or are you making a difference to a person? System,
1: definitely, yeah. Yeah. So uh, as I've alluded to a few times, the majority of the time, uh, prisoners don't have a recognizable mental illness or if they do, it doesn't explain why they committed their offense. So I did a talk about in the insanity plea earlier on today, probably of the times that I'm asked to find it by a defense solicitor, I probably agree with it five to 10% of the time, so 80 to 90% of the time. I'm saying, no, he doesn't meet the threshold for insanity. So I, I don't know how to word this. My evidence puts people in prison far more often than it does
0: get them into hospital.
1: But there, are, there is that small proportion that need hospital. And as I said before, the number of beds are limited. So you
0: have to be very careful about where your threshold is. Um, and is that weighing up whether that it's better for this person individually to go and fit into our system? than it is that our system fits around the person? Uh,
1: So it's whether they've got symptoms that can be treated that are recognisable mental illnesses, uh, which is a grey area in in many ways because some people have both mental illnesses and personality disorders, as I was explaining before. In fact, most people have an element of both uh, to to varying degrees. Um, So to answer your question about whether I'm helping the system or the individual, I definitely help the criminal justice system more as an expert witness than an individual but when I previously worked in one of these units, then they'd already been through that process. So that was the small proportion that were already detained uh, under a criminal section of the mental
0: health. And that's the differentiation,
1: differentiation between your roles. Yeah, then so and now. in that role, I was all about the rehabilitation of people that had already gone through that part of the system. But what I do now is I'm kind of like the gatekeeper of the people that need to be in that system.
0: Using the phrase the gatekeeper feels like a wonderful place to leave today's chat. Yeah. I know. Ali and I could talk to you for hours, um, but you'd get bored of us and we've all run out of pints now. Um, thanks very much. That was something we've wanted to do. In fact, I know the three of us have wanted to sit down and have a record for a while. And um, it's an absolute pleasure to do that with you. And we'll hopefully do it again sometime soon. And uh, we'll in advance, we'll send you cases that we'd like to have a think about so you can have a read about them rather than just dropping them on you. Um Shoham, you've got your YouTube channel, which is a site for minds. Yep. Which you can find uh, on YouTube because it's a YouTube channel, obviously. It's really good. I'm subscribed. Thank you. Uh, (coughs) Ali's a big fan. He keeps coming in every week and going, Shoham's got a new video out. And I'm like, I know, I know. Stop fanboying. Um, Which is why I've done most of the talking this evening because Ali's just sitting fanning himself. Um, (laughs) But you've also got a book out. And your book is?
1: It's called Into Minds, Stories of... uh... Stories of re- journeys of recovery and murder from a forensic psychiatrist. That's the subtitle. I'm not sure exactly. going oh, you it is. say, do you
0: want to try and do your whole book title again there? <laughs> <laughs> no.
1: Um, and it is basically it's like my professional memoir. So it talks about the most fascinating cases. It's slightly autobiographical. It talks about my journey of becoming a forensic psychiatrist. It's just like the the workings behind what goes on behind the scenes. So within it's just kind of loosely split into three sections. So hospitals first, then
0: prisons, then courts.
2: Well, have you got some with you?
1: Uh, you know what I, I, I hate to flex, but uh, my book sold out. At oh, Club. they did. Yeah, but yeah. I'm,
0: well, I'm, I'm seeing you during the week. And what I'll do is I'm going to ask you very nicely. If you will sign a copy of your book and we'd like to give it away to one of our listeners, yeah, yeah, if absolutely. that's possible. Of course. Um, if you'd like, I'm we, keeping that. No, he's, you're not keeping it. You can photocopy it and fax it to yourself. Um, <laughs> no,
1: fuck that, buy a copy.
0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, You're right. <laughs> fuck that, buy a copy. You. Um, Thanks very much for joining us on Twisted Britain, show. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. We will do this again another time. You and I are going for beers on Thursday. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, you're coming my house for dinner. I'm going to insist on it. Um, and uh, from Ali and I, as always, I'd like to say thank you, love you, bye.
2: And thank you, love you, bye.
1: And thank you so much, Bob and Ali, for having me on your amazing platform. Thank you,
0: love you, buy my fucking book. <laughs> buy his fucking book. If you'd like to win a copy of Shahom's book, please check our social media channels now. Thank you, love you, bye.